Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure, and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 16, season 1, and today I speak to Dr. Grant Harwood, a historian with the US Army Medical Department. I spoke to Grant about his recent book on Romanian forces serving with the Axis on the Eastern Front during the Second World War. Grant's book looks at the motivation and the reasons that Romanian officers and soldiers participated in the Holocaust, but also fought in the conflict. He spoke to me from his office in America. Grant, welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Now, before we get into the detail, I should point out from the start that anything you say are, is are your opinions and yours only, and they do not reflect those of the US Army Department of Defense or any other US government department. With that disclaimer out of the way, could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Romanian army during the Second World War? Well, Tom, thanks first off uh, for inviting me and reaching out and uh, giving me this opportunity to uh, wax, I don't know about eloquent, but at least uh, wax about Romania. Um, so how to get interested in this? So it's a, I have kind of two parts, like I have a long uh, kind of a long-term reasons and then more recent reasons. So maybe we can go really far back to when I was a kid. Uh, my grandfather, he served in the U.S. Navy during the 20s and 30s on the carrier USS Lexington, which was one of the first two purpose-built aircraft carriers of the U.S. Navy. Um, so when I was growing up, he would tell me stories about Lady Lex um, living on ship and, and and everything during the war. Luckily, he I I don't think he was he was a little older and he you know he was like I think he was reactivated, but he already left the service and I you know he didn't actually have to go uh, overseas and do much stuff dangerous during the war. But his ship was sunk um, in the Battle of Coral Sea. Lexington was you know sunk there, and so he had a book about that. He would like open it up and tell you know he tell me about his time and the peace you know his experiences in peacetime, and then talk to me about how you know his ship was sunk later when on it. But, you know, during the war, he also would, you know, have these big illustrated books. I don't know if you remember this of uh, Robert Ballard discovering the Titanic, discovering the Bismarck. You know, you have those great photographs and, you know, map paintings that they did of those explorations. And I think I credit a lot of that to always having an interest in history and especially like the Second World War uh, growing up. You know, so, you know, by the time I'm in high school, I'm just like reading, you know, all types of, you know, Bridge Too Far, like. Carnage and Culture by like Victor Davis Hanson. I'm reading like, you know, I get like the big, you know, I have those big picture, like 20 great 20th century battlefields, you know, I have all like the schismatics and, you know, graphics, you know, 3D graph, new 3D graphics about, you know, Market Garden. I was complete, you know, in, in the, you know, and World, World War II history, but like history. And um, so by the time I'm going into, into college, I'm more thinking about, I, Declare as like a history major, um, but it's not until I'm 19 that I, like Romania is even on. Um, at 19, um, I get called on a mission for my church, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, uh, for a two-year mission uh, to Romania. And literally the first time Romania, other than like 
uh, Dracula, which I even like, wasn't until I was at the missionary training center that they were talking about, oh, Romania is composed of you know, Moldavia, Wallachia, Transylvania. And that was the first time it really connected like, oh my God, Transylvania, Dracula, that's in Romania. You know, like it's like the one thing in America we know about uh, Romania. And I hadn't made that connection, you know, other than maybe Nadia Komenich, you know, like gymnastics. And that definitely wasn't on my radar. And so before I was 19, before you know, actually uh, going on my mission, I, that's, I, I, Dracula, you know, that's it. Um, but once I got there, you know, I did two months of language training and then they drop you in the country and assign you, uh, you know, a senior companion. And so after about, you know, I learned the language while I was there. I learned about the people. I learned a little bit about the history and I was just fascinated, you know, and when I, so when I came back to Brigham Young University to, you know, pick up <clears throat> where I left off on my history degree, it was a no brainer. Like I have these language skills now in Romanian. Uh, you know, I'm going to like study Romania. And, uh, and then, you know, as I came, you know, like, I think the next question, but like, I discovered, you know, it's wide open. I mean, there's almost nothing written on, you know, so it's a great, you know, you know, fertile field. You can just put down your plant, your flag, wherever you want, start talking about it. You don't have to find some kind of missing under, you know, understudied bit of Romanian history, especially in English. It's so, so why did you write a book on the Romanian army during the second world war? I think you may have alluded to it. Yeah. I, so, you know, yeah, I start off and, you know, I, I kind of wrote some things as an undergrad and then my master's degree, I it's a master of science, actually, my dissertation at the University of Edinburgh, which we call a thesis, you know, in the United States. Um, I, you know, started looking, you know, I wanted, you know, I was like, okay, World War II, like I have this passion for World War II, you know, I have these Romanian skills. Um, and so my master's work, it started off as kind of um, piggybacking off some of the work, which is of, of earlier historians, especially like Mark Axworthy, he's kind of the big He's written the one book, basically. Um, and it kind of started off in some ways like, oh, you know, uh, I got to kind of redeem or like kind of save the reputation of the Romanian army, uh, which but that really already happened. If you look at Axworthy's book, he basically has set the tone that like the Romanians are a lot more than they're credited with. So during my master's you know, research, I started looking at the stereotypes of, you know, German stereotypes of the Romanian army. And in do doing that, um, you know, that kind of led me down this path of like, let's take on this bigger project, you know, through the Romanian lens rather than through a German lens. And it was doing these oral histories. I started interviewing veterans um, for my master's work, which I continued afterwards. And it was talking to these veterans that I kind of shifted tax and realized like, you know, I don't really want to talk about, you know, kind of, <clears throat> you know, how, you know, you know, effective these guys were and some of the details about I'm like, there are some big questions to answer because actually he's kind of proven that, yeah, the Romanians did a lot more than they're credited with. They actually, you know, did really well and like are very motivated, but he doesn't answer why. You know, if you actually read his book and, and most Romanian literature, they would say like the Romanians are unmotivated. I'm like, well, how could this unmotivated force actually make this big contribution to the Axis war effort? And that's not even to mention the fact that, you know, I started reading all this literature. The, there's way more literature about the, the coming out about Romania and the Holocaust. So I'm like, wait, well, that's definitely not unmotivated behavior. Like if you're killing all these Jews on your own or and you're supporting the Holocaust in, you know, in Ukraine, like that's not a, you know, unmotivated behavior. That's not a bunch of like you simple peasants just kind of like, what are we doing here on the Eastern Front? And that's really if you if you read the, you know, acts where these books and a lot of Romanian nationalist apologist accounts, these are just like simple peasants fighting for God and country. And, you know, once they crossed the Dniester, you know, the Dniester River into 
Ukraine. They just had no idea what they were doing there and they didn't want to be there. I'm like, yeah, but then they play vital roles in the conquest of Crimea. They're at Stalingrad. They fight for a whole nother year plus after Stalingrad when other you know armies packed up like, you know, the Italians and Hungarians packed up and quit. I mean, that's not, you know, a bunch of unmotivated people. Um, so that's where like, you know, doing these interviews, you know, hearing these guys talk about why they were fighting and it comes up almost immediately. And I was asked, I started to specifically asking those questions. Of course, to kind of delve into that. There's something else going on here like, that no one's looking at. Why are these guys actually fighting? And also, so before we get in, into that detail, could we start with a bit of background on Romania in terms of its political governance, demography, religious and ethnic composition um, in, in 1940? Because certainly I am pretty ignorant about Romania, and I'm sure many listeners will be as well. Right. I mean, so the big thing to understand about Romania in 1940s, to understand Romania, what happened in 19... 19- At the end of World War One, Romania doubles in, in both geographic space and population, pretty much, roughly. It had been an you know, old kingdom of Romania, Moldavia, Wallachia. Uh, and now it added Bessarabia from, from the Tsarist Empire in the east. It added, you know, Bukovina and Transylvania from uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, you know, these are very, you know, you know, so it kind of realizes this Romanian nationalist dream, you know. But it also brings in a bunch of my, uh, for which for the Romanians is a terrible thing. They're like 90% ethnic Romanian. Once it expands into Greater Romania, you have like 70%-ish of Romanians. So you all of a sudden you have a big minority, you know, of, of many types of but they're you know the biggest is the ethnic you know ethnic hungarians about 1.4 million um then you have like 725,000 jews uh 745,000 ethnic germans about 600,000 ethnic ukrainians 400,000 ethnic russians uh 360 plus thousand ethnic Bulgarians. um not to mention there's at least like 200,000 um gypsies roma in uh in romania that's just like the ethnic and racial minorities that's not even getting into like there's now also religious minorities most of these religious minorities kind of link up the like ethnic germans are lutherans ethnic hungarians are catholics or calvinists but um they're all there's also muslims um and and there's also some uh neo-protestant you know baptists adventists they're very small numbers uh but they're in transylvania and bessarabia and they I'm going to mention them a little bit because their motivation is interesting. But so you have all these, you know, and, you know, even more importantly, something, you know, half of the Romanians in Transylvania are actually Greek uh, Catholic. They're not Romanian Orthodox, which for Romanians is a really big problem. It's kind of creates this issue of like, well, we now need like two national churches because we have this, these Romanians are not 100% Romanian. Um, so looking at it, you know, but this is 18 million people thereabouts. Um, in the interwar period. So it's a sizable country. It's got oil reserves. It's got mineral reserves. The oil is probably, you know, the most important of those types of resources. Um, but for, you know, and it's also can mobilize, it has about like 2 million men that are kind of the basis. It's actually going to mobilize by 1940, because the war started out, uh, broke out, you know, in September of 1939. They've actually mobilized like uh, over a million men which is just incredible when you think about this. It's relatively small, uh, you know, kind of mid-sized country in Europe, uh, mid-sized population that's uh, relatively, you know, more than relatively poor, right? And it's it mobilizes at 1.2 million men, right? And this is in this attempt because it's worried about the Soviet Union because it grabbed land from Russia. It's worried about 
um, an attack from Hungary because it grabbed land from Hungary after World War One, and same thing if with Bulgaria. It went, and so it's it has three threatened frontiers. And so in you know January 1940, the king is uh, King Carol II. He's going around. He actually does a three-stop tour of these of these uh, threatened borders, claiming you know we'll fight to the last. We're not going to surrender one furrow of Romanian ground, right? Um, but you know. You know, Carol has kind of a troubled, Carol II, he's got, you know, he and he has a kind of bad reputation of corruption, um, especially with uh, against the far right. He's also has a Jewish, quote unquote, mistress. She's actually a daughter of baptized Jews. So her parents were both Christian, you know, Jews that became Christians. And I don't even think, I don't think she was very religious at all. But for the far right, she was, you know, you know, Jew, you know, this devilish Jew influencing, corrupting their monarchy. You know, and there was a Camarilla bribing uh, the, the king and his mistress for favors. Um, so there was, but the king was solidly in control. In 1938, two years earlier, he created a royal dictatorship. Uh, he suppressed all parties except a state-run party called the Front of National Rebirth or Front of National Renaissance. Uh, so he kind of started taking on some, you know, semi-fascist trappings, he even called himself Kunducator, which is Romanian for leader, the equivalent to Fuhrer, um, when he sees these dictatorial, dictatorial powers. So uh, it's important to recognize that by 1940, you know, you already have a dictatorship um, set up in Romania. And then key thing in that happens that I have to mention is a big kind of political change that in um, after the fall of France, um, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, right, had a secret, you know, protocol assigning certain areas of Eastern Europe to either Soviet or German spheres of influence. And one of these protocols included Bessarabia and saying that the Soviets could, you know, that was going to be, you know, within the Soviet sphere of influence. Almost, I think it's the day after Paris falls, the Soviets deliver or so, uh, Paris, you know, sues for surrender, you know, sues for peace with the Germans. The Soviets deliver an ultimatum to Romania, saying, "You give us Bessarabia, or we're going to invade you." And actually, you're going to give us part of Bukovina, which had actually been part of the Austro-Hungarian, but they they want to grab some of that territory as well. Um, and so there is, you know, the Carol for months, you know, not just him, but also the state propaganda, been saying, "We're going to fight. We're going to fight." You know, he's mobilized all these men. They forward deployed the army. I mean, I read an army uh, general, you know, who said, you know, we had no indication we were going to retreat. You know, I had no plans to to retreat. And all of a sudden the king um, advised, you know, basically we can't do what the Finns, you know, we can't have like the winter war delay the Soviets. This is the middle of summer. The Soviets are better prepared. We don't have, you know, all, you know, prepared, you know, defenses prepared for all sorts of reasons. And he, he decides to retreat, you know, without a fight and they have to do it in four days. And there's this, and the Soviets, you know, they're mechanized. And so they're sometimes overrunning, you know, Romanian units, disarming them, um, you know, encouraging locals to like spit on soldiers. Um, and it's a very traumatic experience for the, for Romania, but especially the Romanian army. Um, even though there's very few casualties, there are a few like attacks by, you know, snipers. And this is immediately blamed on Jews, right? Jewish communists, Bessarabia has a lot of Jews there. And other minorities, but it's like, oh, you know, Romanians were starting to see us leave. Ukrainians and Russians, they were kind of like, meh, you know, sad, but like not upset. And the Jews were actively against. Them. And they actually start killing Jews, you know, during the retreat. You know, there's a pogrom-like atmosphere. And, you know, so this decision to see Bessarabia and this really traumatic retreat is then followed by further decisions to cede territory to Hungary and Bulgaria. Um 
it, you know, basically this was the price of joining the Axis was to kind of make peace with the, with Hungary and Bulgaria, um, you know, with actually through mediation of, from Germany and, and Italy. Um, neither one of those were as traumatic. They actually had very phased orderly, more orderly withdrawals. Nobody's. And so, but because, you know, Carol II has surrendered this territory again and again, and because of this reputation for being corrupt, Judaized, you know, under the influence of like his evil Jewish mistress, he gets pushed out of, you know, he gets pushed into exile by Yuan Antonescu, General Yuan, who is seen as like this upright military man, very like in contrast to Carol, that he's kind of honor bound and incorruptible. Um, and this is a really important like political change because Antonescu is going to bring, um, you know, he's going to, you know, really commit to the axis. He's going to also pursue, um, you know, the you know, kind of ethnic cleansing of Jews later on. But I won't want to put it all on him, like, because, but the government he brings in, you know, uh, is of generals, of, you know, some fascists, but even also former supporters of the king. So there's a lot of people who are already in place, but definitely Johan Antonescu taking over in 1940 is going to radicalize Romania's war against the Soviet in a way that if Carol had stayed in power, there's likely to have still been, you know, crimes and atrocities. Probably, you know, likely it wouldn't have been as uh, as extreme, but because, uh, you know, with pressure pushing down, continue to continue fighting and to, so, sorry, long question, uh, you know, long response to your question, but. Hopefully that clarifies something. No, I think I think that's useful for what will what what will come next and explain some of the, the behaviour of the Romanian army. So just thinking about briefly, what was the military commitment that that Romania deployed um, against the Soviet Union between sort of 1941 and 44? What areas did they fight? And you've already alluded to it. And did they participate in the Holocaust? Right. So I guess. Area campaigning, I'll cover first. Um, so basically, it's in this on the southern flank of of the eastern front, primarily in southern Ukraine. So you don't get as north as like Kiev. You know, they're uh, they're more along the coast, um, though they still they actually they do operate further north. They actually get as far north as Kharkov um, uh, later on. Um, they're, they're at the second battle of Kharkov. They actually play have a whole kind of a bulked up core of 60,000 um, but southern Ukraine Crimea they play a huge role in Crimea like the conquest of Crimea and holding on to it um, during the Soviet winter counteroffensive 41 really couldn't have happened probably without extra Romanian just in the German they m- could have been overwhelmed I would say likely have been overwhelmed. Um, they're in southern Russia you know the you know during case blue and uh, the northern Caucasus as well I mean so and this is an important point out right this is kind of this is a secondary part of the Eastern Front in 1941. I mean, Army Group Center going towards Moscow, right? That's the main thrust. But Hitler, especially, but even a lot of the generals, like grabbing Ukraine was extremely important, right? The Baltics, you know, Army Group North, you know, not as important as, you know, you know, the Army Group South. Um, then it becomes a primary, right? It's the primary part of the front in 1942. Uh, the Romanian asked, you know, Romanian contribution in 1943, 44, it, uh, even though Ukraine remains important, the remains are assigned to kind of like a backwater part in the Kuban bridgehead, um, in the Caucasus, and in Crimea. So 43, 44, but that's partly because the Romanian army had its guts ripped out of it at Stalingrad. But 43, 44, it's kind of in these backwaters. And then, you know, mid 44, it's again kind of, it's remobilizing, defending Romania, defending that oil resource, right? So then it began, again, becomes kind of on a more, you know, important aspect. So it's, the Romanian army, where it's operating is, you know, fairly strategically important uh, area. Its contribution is important. 
the, the sizes contribution, right, in the first day of the invasion, it um, uh, has 326,000 soldiers committed to Operation Blood, which actually grows um, uh, to about like 386,000 by like kind of a peak in October 41. They have two field armies, Third Army and Fourth Army, that actually temporarily are part of an army group with a German um, 11th Army. So there's a, actually a fourth forgotten army group of Barbarossa. No one remembers it. It's Army Group Antonescu. Um, and, but it, 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 it lasts for about a month. Once they liberate uh, Romanian territory, uh, then kind of it's broken up and Third Army you know, kind of subordinated and continues with 11th Army and then while uh, 4th Army invests Odessa, um, which is very important to allowing the Germans to continue eastward. Um, the peak of the contribution, um, well, sorry. So after like the initial Operation Barbarossa, the commitment, you know, declines a bit. The main 4th Army is demobilized to the most part after conquering Odessa, uh, in large part because the Germans can't supply it. I mean, they would probably like the men, but they're already having problems with the Romanian third army. The Romanian third army is smaller. Um, it's, you know, it's got the mountain Corps, the cavalry Corps, which are these elite, you know, brigades. Um, the, uh, and um, they also have uh, model divisions. These are infantry divisions trained by the Germans. So third army has like the best Romanian units. It also has the best Romanian artillery, like the most modern and motorized. It's got motorized cavalry um, and you know, most mobile troops, you know, horse cavalry, um, cavalry. So the Germans have taken the best of the main army with them. Fourth army, they can't really like, and you know, they already they can't really supply all that, and it, it you know, demobilizes for the winter. But even during the winter, you have 104,000 troops in Transnistria, which is territory annexed by Romania and Ukraine. Plus, they're doing security operations, about 23,000 troops between the Bug River and the Dnieper, and then there's another 50,000 troops you know, fighting in Crimea, basically. Um, and so, you know, then that's that's still like 170, you know, almost 180,000 men. And this is the small, you know, this is the, the smallest it gets pretty much, um, except after, you know, uh, and, you know um, uh, the, the height, of course, is going to be during uh, Case Blue. The Romanian army remobilizes for the summer offense. It's already like been sending troops to fight in the spring, you know, reinforcing um, in the spring. Uh, but for Case Blue, you have a peak in November of 1942 of 463,000 troops, uh, including, you know, a 3,000 that are occupying Transnistria. I mean, these are troops, you know, about half, uh, 150,000 of those are at Stalingrad on you know, your flank. We also have troops, you know, occupying Crimea. You have troops fighting on the front in the Caucasus. Um, I mean, this is a huge, you know, uh, amount of troops you know, for the, you know, huge contribution for Case Blue. After Stalingrad, um, the army gets, you know, cut down. You know, they have to pull, you know, they lose, you know, tens of thousands during the battle. And then they have to withdraw third and fourth armies. But you still have troops in the, in the, in, in the Caucasus and Crimea. About 189,000 troops during 1941. Most of those are fighting in the Kuban Bridgehead, which is this kind of idiotic uh, idea of Hitler to hold on to one little part of of the Caucasus as a springboard for a future offensive. This is this little peninsula directly across from Crimea um, that they are just holding this, you know, uh, perimeter, you know, with German forces and Romanian forces. Um, and then they pull back into Crimea. Um, finally, like when in March of 44, the Red Army breaks through and begins to overrun Romania and Romania remobilizes. They do one more general mobilization with, uh, they're able to call up 1.1 million men which is incredible when you think about it, like 1.2 million 
1940, when they had all their territory, was what they did. Now they do 1.1 million. This is, you know, after, you know, you know, three years of combat almost. This is after they've lost territory, even though they've gained some of it back. I mean, this is still an incredible number. They're actually starting to mobilize, you know, teenagers at this point. Um, they only put about 420,000 on the front line of that. But still, I mean, that's almost as many men as at, at the height of when they were contributing to Case Blue. Um, and so, I mean, you know, this is a very large, important you know, contribution uh, to be allow the Nazis to hold on to Romania for that much longer, to be able to pump out that much more oil um, until the Romanian armies finally crushed uh, in August of late August of four. And it's not completely destroyed because there's a royal coup that, you know, decapitates the Antonescu regime and declares peace. And so the Romanian army will switch sides after that. But we're not going to get too much. I won't go into too much focus on the Eastern. Um, so it's a sizable contribution to one of the important theaters. And finally, with the Holocaust, there's kind of two parts of the Holocaust divided into three geographic regions. So the initial part is uh, called what the Romanians called cleansing the terrain. This is a military term, kind of like we would say, like, you know, clear the area. Right. But it takes on a more sinister aspect of we're going to, as we, you know, advance into northern Bukovina and Bessarabia and liberate these territories, we're going to cleanse the terrain, right? Particularly of Jews, right? We're going to uh, round them up, uh, shoot them, mostly deport them, uh, just kind of kick them over into Ukraine. There was this understanding that, uh, between Antonescu and Hitler that Hitler had informed him, you know, we're going to kill the Jewish intellectual in, intellectual class and, you know, communists, you know, the commissar order. We're also then going to deport all Jews beyond the Urals. So the Romanians are just like, we're just going to push them in, you know, east. We're going to cleanse the terrain, you know, basically ethnic cleansing. Um, and this is pretty much, you know, this is like Romanian independent, you know, policy. The SS gets involved and kind of tries to shape it, but the, the Romanians are doing this. They're in charge. Their territory, they're liberating, you know, they're why they have this army group. You know, they can do what they want, basically. The Germans can't really, you know, influence their policy except to maybe kill a few more Jews. You know, we want you to shoot these types of Jews. It's, it's really crazy, but that's what they were doing. Because when they start off, the SS units aren't shooting all Jews indiscriminately, right? They're going after like, we're going after, you know, dangerous Jews, partisans, communist leaders, you know, you know, kind of a specific class, you know, of Jewish communists in, in their imagination. Whereas the Romanians are like, no, we're going to get rid of all of them, right? We're going to like shoot Jews and the Jews, you know, the Jews that we don't shoot, we're going to like deport and get rid of them all. And so the, you know, for the SS, they're like, this is crazy. This is so like, you know, chaotic. They're not shooting the Jews. They want them to shoot. It's literally what they're complaining about. Um, you know, they actually have the SS being like, oh, don't shoot these Jews yet. You know, we want to shoot these Jews. You know, we got to shoot like these. Eventually by the, you know, the SS, uh, um, Einsatzgruppe D, the Special Task Force D that's in the area, fairly quickly then decides we're just going to shoot all the Jews. Um, it takes some time. It's, you know, you know, there's a great book by, about this uh, by uh, edited, uh, mostly by, but I think it's both the author, but Christopher Brown, looking at how this develops. Um, and so that's the second part, the final solution part of the Holocaust, right? This is the German directive. So once you cross the Dniester River and you cross you know, out of you know, liberated Romanian territory, you're coming under what is claimed by the German, right? That Ukrainian territory is now going to be German annexed and eventually turned into Reichskommissariat uh, Ukraine, uh, Commissariat, Reichskommissariat Ukraine, right? So the Romanians can't really do whatever they want uh, with, with Jews. And actually, they're told very specifically, like, Jews are the SS's business. 
not yours, right? And so the essence, so the remains are still like doing what the dad been doing. They've been taking hostages, shooting Jews, um, you know, kind of on a whim sometimes. Sometimes it's like reprisals, uh, rooting them out, right? Um, and then the SS are like, hey, you got to turn your Jews that you collected over to us. Um, and in Ukraine and in Crimea, they even do this, like um, that, you know, they, they'll, if they do, they'll might help the SS or the remains will even run their own, you know, kind of search and turn up Jews. But they often won't shoot them immediately. They'll, they've been told they have to hand them over to the SS to be killed. Um, and the Romanians know what the SS are going to do with them. So they become more supportive, but this is in part because of like German policy. It's not that the Romanians weren't willing to shoot Jews. You know, when the Germans asked them to, and then certain times when they, you know, when the SS need shooters, they'll get Romanian support, right? But the Romanians, you know, you know, it's SS policy. It's really kind of nutty, um, but um, it's, 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 that's what it is. So you have Transnistria that becomes annexed by Romania, right? So then it's kind of a mixed policy because SS still have a presence there. There's like, agreements with uh, the Germans about certain concessions. It's used as a dumping ground for all these Jews from Romania, but then there's also local Jews. There's some, so that becomes messy, you know, even more messy. It's not as easy. And then in the rest on the kind of Reichskommissariat, uh, Ukraine, and on the front, the Romanian army is, uh, you know, kind of second, you know, a supportive role uh, in the, in the final solution. Uh, willing, but, you know, kind of, you know, within the bounds set, by them, set by the Germans for the Romanian. Before we get on to why the Romanian army fought, how would you rate uh, morale as an, as an operation? As you've touched on, some Germans were rather rude about the Romanians seeing them as rather useless, and certainly that's confirmed in a number of accounts I've read. But did the Romanian army suffer from major breakdowns in morale in terms of desertion, mutiny, or combat refusals? And also added to this, did the R Romanian military leadership actually undertake um, attempts to measure and monitor the morale of its soldiers on a consistent system basis? Well, I guess I'll start with that last question first. Like, yes, the Romanian army was actually very concerned about morale. Um, you know, today the, the narrative goes like, oh, the minute they crossed the Dniester, uh, the Romanian army lost all morale. They, they didn't know what they're fighting. They had no you know skin in the game, you know, and that they had no motivation and the morale, you know, because they liberated their territory and that's it. Um, and the Romanian army is actually concerned about this during the, I found articles where they're like, you know, you know, they're, they're, a general would literally say like, you'll blame any kind of combat failures on poor morale later. And, and then they'll say like, well, you know, these Romanian peasants, they're just so attached to like the earth of the homeland. That they just can't understand why they're here. And so this was even like a Romanian like idea during the war. And so they actually kept, a, you know, fairly good track of 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 this now i looked through a lot of these morale reports they actually get up to like i mostly looked at like core and army level so this is like you know big picture stuff so i'm not i haven't been able to like get into like divisions or regiment you know that's a whole different project so this is the stuff that's like getting up to like core and army lead. um and they actually have fairly detailed reports it's 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 kind of mixed bag they have really detailed they'll have like a section they'll have a whole paragraph about on, on the officers right so they make sure to really pay attention to the morale of officer, like whether complaints, what are they saying? You know, of course, you know, with your staff officer, it's easier to go ask. Then they'll have like a couple sentences on non-commissioned officer, right? And oftentimes it's like echoey, you know, they're kind of reflecting like kind of very similar things like, oh, our families or hey, our pay isn't good enough. The enlisted men, it's usually one word, good, buna, you know, morale, buna. Um, they actually call these uh, stadia de spirit, you know, state of the spirit or spiritual state. Uh, it translates better as mood, right? This is what like the army 
And it's interesting because like we, we think of morale and like it's, you know, what is it? John Lynn has a great definition. He calls it like the climate of the arm. And he actually goes and he has this great like five category definition. You know, this is, you know, first basic social and group attitudes ingrained in civilian life. Second, opinions and codes indoctrinated in the soldiers, wartime. Um, third, like reactions to service, conditions, food, shelter, rest, equipment, medical, etc. Mail, casualties, uh, esprit de corps, you know, depending on that, as forth. Uh, anyway, I have a list here, but now I can't read. But he's just like great categorization. Problem is, none of these guys writing these reports conceived of it that way, right? Um, Alexander Watson, in his, his book about the British Army, he says, you know, morale is a shorthand for sust- uh, sust- uh, sustaining and combat motivation, right? Sustaining motivation, meaning like, why you're staying in the army? Why won't, you know, the reasons why you don't desert, self-inflict, you know, you're willing to sit in a trench, basically. And the combat motivation, right, is actually attacked. And so morale, you know, is very mushy. So we can define it all we want, and Lynn has a great definition, but we actually have to, like, look at it like these like these officers, and kind of, they use this morale shorthand, right? A, a lot of those things I read off, they are thinking of. They have, they'll talk about mail. There's very kind of Napoleonic attitude in these reports of, like, an army marches on its stomach. You know, where they're very focused on like material problems, you know, problems like mail, leave, um, food, right? So, you know, they don't get too much into some, but some of them are actually very detailed. Like I had one that was like, what, you know, I think 70% understand why we're fighting here, right? That we're against Bolshevism and the rest, you know, don't know what we're doing, right? So you do actually have some that are like that, you know, kind of, you know, critical thinking. It's not just like, okay, they're complaining about how they don't you know, have good food, right? Um, and it's really interesting. And these reports, I think, are really important. Um, uh, uh, Gary Sheffield talks about how we can't just lay these aside, even like division or staff officers, even though they're kind of further away from the front and from being in the trenches with their men, you know, they still have a better sense of what morale is like, what the mood of the army is like than us now, or like the Germans, even though know, the Germans can report on Romanian morale and they're seeing it through their lens, right? And they're all their, all their biases and Soviet reports on Romanian morale are even less, you know, um, reliable, you know, they're, they're taking it from captured soldiers. So for me, like, you know, these are, you know, forever, forever problematic, you know, some of these uh, morale reports are, they're still very valuable. And they're still the best we have about understanding that mood. And um, there's sometimes they get frank. And like, it's really funny, near the end of the war, 43-44, instead of just, instead of saying Buna, instead of saying good, they start saying things like mediocre, or like, yeah, which is like understatement, you know, bureaucratic understatement for like really, really effing bad. You know, like if you have like, because if, if you have years and years and years of just buna, 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 then all of a sudden it's like medioku. It's like, oh, wait a minute here. We've got a problem with this unit, you know? So it's, you know, so you can find a lot about that. That being said, like overall, the morale is actually very good. It's very resilient. I mean, there's ups and downs. And I think that's one of my biggest pet peeves is people are like, Romanian morale went bad. I'm like, well, you do realize it's an army of like hundreds of thousands of men, right? You have two field armies, you've got like 24 divisions, like every single one's a little different. But overall, like, you know, they have really high morale in the war starts. It's one of the reasons why they're committing all the right. They think they're going to win. And, you know, why not like, you know, you know, commit, you know, why not ethnically cleanse the, the hated Jewish enemy and maybe some Hungarians, you know, or, you know, maybe some Ukrainians as well, you know, like, and so it's very high spirits. Um, there, you know, there's a crisis in the winter of 41, but, you know, because of the motivation, because of ideology, we're getting later, like, because of this, a solid foundation of motivation, the morale is kind of like the day-to-day, like on the top service, like fluctuation. There was a really great um, uh, diary by a, a major 
in command of a mountain battalion. And he talks about like the soldiers getting upset one day when they find they're not going in, you know, fall of 41, when like all signs, they thought like the war was about to wrap up. They thought they were finished. And he writes like, well, you know, anger like joy is fleeting, right? So he's, you know, and his own like his own account, he'll have like sometimes where he's just super mad writing his diary, talking about how like, why are we here? You know, it's been two years. Like, and then like, and, that, and then a couple days later, he was like, we are here because we're fighting communism. We're defending the homeland. You know, so him himself, if you read his diary, it's like, so like individuals and then like units, it's all very different. But overall, if you're looking at the army, which like I said, it's still, it's very resilient. Um, up until basically, it's, it's too cliche to say just Stalingrad. Like Stalingrad really hurts morale. I mean, there are some problems, um, but it recovers actually a bit by the spring. And there's this expectation of like, is there going to be another German summer effect, right? You know, they'd had Barbarossa, you'd had Case Blue, right? So it's not really until like Kursk misfire and is the failure and the Soviets actually have their summer offensive that morale really starts like to slip. Um, and even then, morale's never so bad. There's a couple units where like I have, you know, there's some regiments that like are worn out demoralized not much good um in like crimea but most of them are still a lot of them are still willing to fight and then when they do this massive you know remote you know general mobilization in 41 in, in, in romania like they're now fighting for their home territory and you're mobilizing all these young kids right so you have the morale like it's kind of mixed right we're like they're actually like we're gonna fight defend like we know we're losing the war but maybe we can defend our country and so in, even in 44 like which is when the morale is probably worst in summer of 44, when like the Soviets have occupied part of Romania. They're obviously winning the war. The material superiority is clear. Morale is still generally like, okay. It's not so bad where like soldiers just deserting like, right? You know, there, there's no like mass draft riots, right? People aren't protesting. Like, you know, there's some draft evasion if by 44, you have like some, like um, uh, some groups who like are from Bessarabia. Well, we're probably that, you know, Bessarabia was going to be reconquered. Maybe we can desert. Like there's some like, you know, Romanians from different regions, right? But overall, like the army is actually very, quite, res quite resilient. It's it's pretty incredible, especially when you compare it to like what it said, which is basically like after, you know, August of 41, that was crap, right? Like if you read German sources, that's basically what they like. Once they liberate Eastern Romania, their, their morale is terrible. And that's just not true. You know, they actually, you know, and um, so... I mean, that's kind of like the big responses. I mean, there's some differences, and I think we'll talk about that uh, according to like um, some of the ethnicities, like ethnic Germans in the army um, or Hungarians and or especially gypsies uh, uh, in uniform. But I think we'll address that a little bit later when we talk about. But yeah, so that's over. Overall, I think it's actually much better uh, than is generally credited. So what in your research underpins this morale? What sort of motivations come through in the research that you did um, that sustains soldiers, obviously, in the front line, but also to commit atrocities against uh, Jews and civilians in Ukraine and southern Russia? Well, you know, I think, you know, it starts off as ideologically. My Basically, my big argument in my book is that it all comes down to a certain extent to ideology. Um, the soldiers understood why they were there, right? Sometimes they didn't like to be there. Right. Um, there are instances where like there's uh, in I have a great uh, anecdote in my book of there's uh, in the September of 41 or yeah, October 41. The German uh, as they're demobilizing some of the Romanian army. Uh, one of these mountain divisions is, is, is slated to go home because they think the war is over. 
And last minute, like they divert it and send it to Crimea. And there's like an example of like, you know, the guy in his, he's a sergeant writing his, in his diary. And he says, you know, when, you know, the, the colonel's in his speech because the rumors have broke, like, hey, we're not going home. So then the colonel gives a speech. He's like, we're going to Crimea. We got to defeat Jewish communism. There's there going to be me- opportunity to win ma- very many medals. And when that happens, all of a sudden, there's this chorus in this in the uh, in the uh, battalion. Uh, I think this is artillery battalion. That's assembled in front of them. That start going. Someone starts saying "Akasa, Akasa, Akasa." Means home, home, home. Right? The guys want to go home. They fought in like some terrible battles already. They've been told they're going home. They think the war's almost over. You know, they know another unit is actually getting demobilized. They don't want to be alone. The colonel then says, hey, anyone who said that, step forward. Seven guys do. None of one else does. And the unit goes and fights very bravely, you know, in Crimea. So, like, you know, there are moments, right, when, like, the morale goes low. There's, like, the Germans use a couple instances. There's, like, a battalion. There's, like, a battalion in like winter of 43 that refuses to go to into into the line in the coupon bridgehead like oh look you see how bad your morale is we got to break up your units and really it's like we're going to break up your units and then plug them into our weak units and so we can like you know you know basically to effectively have more control over that um you know but like very isolated uh, if you know examples of some like mutinies like this um desertion is it's happening but like, you know, but overall, like Romanian soldiers were told why they were there. This ideological understanding that even like not just being told the why they're there, but things that they grew up with, right? They're in a, from a peasant society, um, you know, they have seen, some of them have literally seen the ravages of the Russian Civil War. It's right over the border. I mean, there's some peasants on the, on the, on the Nisa River that could see like crosses getting chopped off, torn down off of churches, right? There were waves of refugees in the 1920s, first from the Civil War, Right. And then the 1930s, starving peasants. And you think that a stories about starving peasants isn't going to resonate. Right. Stories about cannibalism in Ukraine because of the collectivization. I mean, so even if like we're looking at like peasants who aren't super well educated, they can understand this is, you know, communism represents an existential threat. They might not understand like Marxist Leninist ideas or, you know, anti-communist, you know, arguments about capitalism. But they do understand like communism means like my land's going to be taken away. My way of life will be just, will be destroyed, and Jews, right? Jews will be put in power. Like this is there is this understanding that like communism and Jews are connected. And once you know, once again, and so if you have this ideological mindset of like we're fighting for our nation, we are this Christian people, right? The Jews are out to get us. Communism is out to destroy our way of life, and even worse, the Jews are in control of communism, right? You know that makes you really fearful of this you know communist threat, and then you invade them. And in the first few months, you murder tens of thousands of Jews and also civilians. I mean, they are like, I found them, they're like, uh, there's, they started shooting, you know, communists, you know, non-Jews, basically. They're like, we want confirmed communists shot in these villages. You know, in Crimea, when they take over Crimea, they put out orders saying, you know, civilians turn over weapons and partisans. If you don't, you'll be treated according to the laws of war, right? We're going to shoot you. And they do, they shoot, they do mass reprisals against, you know, regular civilians. So you commit these war crimes at the start of the war, some of the worst right at the beginning against Jews. And in your mind, you have this connection that Jews and communism are related and Jews even control communism. And you've just like invaded communism, you know, like the communist state, you've just murdered the citizens. So you also have this, you know, fear, right, of like retribution, you know. So I think, you know, when we talk about ideology, it can get kind of abstract. And I try to show that in my book that like, you know, yes, these are kind of big ideas and maybe right right in the moment of combat, some guys are thinking like, I'm dying for the motherland or, you know, I got to kill this, I, I hate Judaism. But it's that ideological basis, right, that 
keeps them in, you know, basic gets them to join the army, gets them to stay in the army, and then, you know, build relationships, primary groups, which so much is written about, right? Why are you going to bond with these guys if you all think that this is still, you know, you all believe in Jewish bullshit, right? You all, you all know that like, hey, you remember when we, you know, committed crimes and, you know, you know, remember how we shot like that guy's cow or we, you know, we shot those prisoners, you know, that's in the ball in the back of your head, right? That's all con- contributing to why a soldier will actually like advance under fire, right? So I think there's a lot more, there's a lot of ideological uh, underpinning to this, you know, compared to like our kind of desensitized view of like the primary group of just like, we're buddies and we fight for each other because we're buddies. And I, I think that's, it's true, right? You do fight for your buddies, but your buddy is like a, the personification of the nation. If your buddy is complaining, like, we really shouldn't be shooting these Jews. You know, I think this war is criminal. That guy is not your buddy anymore. He's not in your primary group. And I like, there is like, I have, you know, examples of, there's a great book um, that talks about this. Uh, I can't think of Max Berg, Berghoff. Can't, I guess I can't, he had a weird last name, something. Um, he wrote about this, like um, in the context of Yugoslavia, but he's talking about how like, there are like tensions when you can start committing, you know, atrocities, genocide, there's tensions within the community. You have to have, you know, and you start even threatening people who aren't going to get on board. Right. So I have an officer, he talks about, you know, some of this is, you know, he's after the war, he's giving testimony. So maybe he's trying to like make himself look better, but it still rings true to me. He talks about how like, you know, he, they enter a village, you know, in uh, Bukovina and there's this cry goes up, oh, snipers, snipers, there's Jewish snipers. And the guys go out and start, you know, grabbing Jews, shooting the men almost, you know, on the spot sometimes and gathering other Jews and taking them to be interrogated, to be sorted. Um, and, you know, there's this NCO who's dragging this woman who's then dragging a child. And the guy takes pity and he says, hey, you know, like, corporal, give me that woman. He's like, what are you talking about, lieutenant? You know, I'm in order to take him over there. They're, you know, they're going to get treated. You know, they're going to get sorted. And he's like, no, give him to me. He's like, okay. And he says, like, the guy looked at me, staring death at me. And so he, you know, turns over this woman and child. The officer then gain, you know, kind of does a similar thing. He ends up like kind of five you know, Jews, mostly like women, children, like older people. Then the major comes by and says, hey, Give me those, give me those Jews. They're going to be taking them over here. And he, he's like, so he has to follow orders, turns them over to this major. He follows them to like this courtyard where the Jews are being like interrogated, which basically means like beaten, like they're being tortured, you know, sometimes being tortured. And the ones that deemed, you know, it's unclear if they're all being shot. I don't think they are. Like they'll usually like the German, you know, the, the Romanians will kind of shoot the men and then some women and children, uh, especially at the beginning of, especially when they're, they see the men as threats and they can kind of legitimize that and they can even like claim oh this woman had a gun or you know but they, they do some sort of sort you know they, they actually try to do kind of a mini investigation it's complete focus but they're shooting people and he can't stay to watch and see what happened and as he leaves another lieutenant says hey what are you a kike like you should be shot along with them right so here within if you are you know this is supposed to be your primary group right these are your comrades this is the his commander one of his fellow officers even like that corporal to begin with right that corporal you know, in a Romanian army where, like, they are very, very, like, trained, right, to respect officers and be deferential. That corporal was willing to backtalk that officer over the fact of him wanting to protect these Jews, right? He, that officer, by showing some modicum of, like, compassion and wanting to protect these, you know, what he saw as innocent, right, put him outside that primary group, right? Put him outside the norm. And I think that's really important to understand, right, that those, you know, you know, that, those ideological underpinnings are there and that the, those things help bind the primary group together. They also push some people. Um, so, you know, I think you know, they give me like kind of a solid reason, like a solid example of kind of these abstract ideas. So my book kind of is, you know, very, you know, high level. I try to get into the trenches. 
but like you know it's kind of hard to like pinpoint anybody's motivation ever but i think i try to make the best case that like these ideology really is that kind of the cement the foundation that's you know it's that's just that is motivating a lot of these decisions later on when like maybe they're thinking about just fight or flight or greed you know fight or flight in combat or like greed like i want these this jews you know gold you know there's other things going on in the moment but you know you, if you want to step back, it's those ideological understanding of like seeing the USSR as the homeland of the kike. They literally say this type of stuff. Like it's Satan's home, you know, it's, you know, you know, it's, it's satanic Jewish homeland, right? Then you can kind of understand why these guys are so motivated, why they remain motivated even when the war starts, you know, doesn't end in 1941 like they expect, you know, even, even after a major defeat. I wonder whether we can actually start that and look at some of the nuances uh in motivation amongst different groups. So I was wondering about looking at, you know, looking, comparing the front line with the rear echelon unit and looking at the difference between officers and enlisted men. I wonder whether we could start with the difference between frontline troops and maybe rear echelon person. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always a lot easier to fight a war if you're in the rear echelon. I mean, I think that's that's universal for um, uh, for every army. You know, there's always a disdain for the... Um, there's an interesting... Uh, development of that kind of occurs uh even on for the frontline troop i mean there you know you have eliteness i think really kind of connect that you know and that's even like the eliteness of being like a front soldier right even if you're like a regular infantryman you can see yourself as elite compared to you know the supply guy you know in the rear right and you can like in you know, that you disdain that you know that he never gets close to combat and so i think there's there's you know you know why you can become self-pityingly self-pitying of yourself as being like a you know front soldier at the same time there's like a pride in that of like you know we take on the dangerous mission um so you know you know in the combat situation like yeah i mean it's pretty clear right you know but you know there's there's no strong evidence to me that like frontline soldier you know rear area you know there's a big you know guys in the rear are going to have better morale just because they're not having to like you know put their lives in danger but at the same time like as i don't see any like evidence that like the guys putting themselves in danger just have terrible morale Especially if they're in some elite units, like mountain mountain units, cavalry units. These guys, you know, the mountain troops, they were like, were the elite infantry. They wore like berets, golf-style pants, white socks, you know. And so they got to have this sort of dash. I mean, these are huge berets. Sometimes I look at them and they're kind of ridiculous. But these guys are wearing them like, I see pictures on the front. Some guys will wear them um, instead of their helmet. Like, they'll take their helmet off. You know, if they're just like on a patrol, they don't feel at risk, like... You know, I see like a, a I've seen like a, a picture of a patrol where it's like helmeted, helmeted guy with a beret on, another helmeted guy, right? So like, you know, his buddies, you know, they just want to keep their helmets on. But some of these guys, they really felt like, you know, we're the elite. And the cavalrymen, they, they, you know, they, you know, are also often a social because they most, you know, noblemen and stuff are in the cavalry, and you know, they have some motorized regiments. So then they also have that like, you know, you know, air of uh, expertise. So like. There's that, you know, as well, where you like, so the frontline troops could actually like develop a very high sense of esprit de corps. And, and it's really interesting at Stalingrad, you actually have um, two groups, right? On the southern part, you know, which becomes uh, our Romanian fourth army, which is actually a bunch of formerly third army troops. It's really, it's, we'll talk about this. On the southern flank, they are like combat veterans from the Battle of Kharkov, from uh, the Kirch Peninsula Battle. So these guys are like, they've participated in some pretty incredible victories. Right, they're very cocksure, and but on the dawn, you actually have a bunch of remobilized uh, veterans of Odessa and 
raw conscripts who are covering your know, third army, you know, to the uh, west of Songri. And the commander says, like, these guys aren't at quite as, you know, uh, they're not as motivated. You know, he's like, the batere de inima. He's like, beating of a heart. It's kind of like, they, they're lack, they kind of lacking, like, bloodlust, like, oomph, you know, like, compared to these other guys. Like, so these, you know, so some of these troops that, like, are out there, even though they, they, it's kind of it's a batter, battered bastards kind of syndrome, right? Like, you kind of, like, we've been out here on the front so long. We've been part of these battles. Like, like yeah, we got this, you know, versus the guys who got demobilized, you know, after Odessa, got to stay home for a little bit, remobilized, you know, they got like a bunch of greenhorns. Those are the guys who are on the dawn, right? And there's, they're less sure of themselves. Um, so there is differences. And that's the interesting part, right? Of, you know, that there are those differences within the army. It's not just like, oh, morale is good, right? Some of these divisions, you know, like, they get really cocksure, even though like, you know, it's just some infantry division, you know, it's, you know, some of these divisions, they're just mountain, you know, they're not mountain division, not cavalry division, south of Stalingrad. It's just, well, there's a couple cavalry brigades, or not cavalry, but they're infantry divisions. And so there's like, but even those guys feel like it's really incredible. There's this, there's this moment that I found and um, it's after the, after the encirclement, right? It's during the, the German attempt to relieve Stalingrad. No one ever talks about this. The Romanian infantry and cavalry are hugely important to that German panzer thrust. Without infantry, Romanian infantry support and Romanian cavalry protecting the flanks, the Germans couldn't have gone as far as they tried to get to, to uh, Stalingrad to relieve it. But there is a moment where Romanian cavalrymen are, you know, trotting up to the front, and as they're passing the infantry, they yell, Rupert's frontal, which means break the front. So these guys, even after this huge disaster of Stalingrad, in the middle of winter, right, this is December, during, you know, they believe the Germans and them are still have a chance to break through the Russians and, you know, clean this whole thing up, right? I mean, that's the kind of, like, chutzpah, kind of, like, you know, morale we don't see about Romanian soldiers ever. But, I mean, that is reality, you know? And I'm not saying every unit was like that, right? In the dawn, there were some units that were, like, you know, scared. You know, they would have reports in, like, September before the battle, like, when they're having these small, you know, backs and forths on the Don River, some mortar teams wouldn't fire during an enemy attack because they didn't want to reveal their position and have counter battery fire, you know, and they're even, and even in the report, it says like these soldiers morale, you know, they don't know what they're fighting. For, right. You know, and, yeah, I think it's more like they don't have good weaponry. They're under-equipped. And so this officer is like, Oh, it's just bad morale. They don't know what they're fighting for. They knew what they're fighting for. They just, their training was bad. And they were outclassed. And if they knew that they fired their mortars that like, super heavy Soviet artillery was going to target them, right? You know, we don't want to, you know, it's like, it's it's not the fact that we, we don't hate Jews and Bolshevik, you know, it's not the fact like we don't want to be, it's, it's more like, you know, we just like fear for our lives, you know, if you hate, we had better weapons, which, and I, that's, there's a, sorry, too many anecdotes, but there's a diary of an artilleryman out on the dawn before Stalingrad, before the, the Soviet inner counteroffensive, and they, are having like shell shortages, right? So they can only fire uh, a few shells a day. And if they want to do a big shoot, they actually have to get permission from the battalion commander, right? Other than, you know, you know, only if the infantry shoot up like uh, a flare, you know, and they really need, do they, are they supposed to shoot? Other than that, they have to watch. And he sits there and he writes in his diary, I'm like, I'm watching through my, glo- my, my glasses. I can see the Soviets coming in and out, you know, guys, you know, you know couriers coming. And he's like, I really love watching them, but I really love to shoot at their head. He's just like, I wish I had permission and the and the ammunition just to unload on these guys, right? But he doesn't. And so it's the it's not the lack of motivation, right? It's not a lack of morale, right? And it's a little too simplistic to say it's just like 
the you know material problems but like you know that's one of the big problems it's so it's it's less the motivation and then i would actually argue that the motivation actually is one of the reasons why the romanians they kind of punched above their weight right like they tried to make up for lack of training lack of uh, you know modern material with really motivated and they actually kind of do for a little bit but eventually that doesn't matter right you know strength of the will eventually gets crushed right you know it eventually gets crushed by soviet firepower <laughs> although there's one thing i forgot to mention about you know rear echelon versus uh front line in regards to atrocity motivation and that's that frontline soldiers will commit atrocities there's kind of this idea of like hot-blooded atrocities versus cold-blooded right hot-blooded mean like they will take some casualties and they'll immediately blame it on like some kind of like you know sniper or like a frank trier is what they called them initially you know gorilla you know the french term for gorilla you know later on they adopt the term the term partisan because that's what the germans use uh, but you know they'll, and they'll shoot people kind of like with you know you know, as, as mass reprisal, like they'll take some casualties, blame it on some civilians, especially Jews. And, but they generally, especially as the war goes on, they get, if they're too busy fighting to commit a lot of these atrocities, you then have behind them gendarmes. You have two different types. This is important to point out. There's gendarmes, you know, these are military police that are under the uh, Ministry of the Interior. Some of them are assigned, sorry, these are militarized police, right? They're like trained as kind of like soldiers. Some of them are assigned as military police to the army. So they're, you know, they, they, so after the soldiers come, the frontline soldiers, you know, they'll do hot blooded, you know, atrocities, you know, shooting people here and there for, you know, whether they think they're a sniper or a communist or just because they're Jewish or they were greedy, whatever, you know, they rape women, they move on. Then you have the military police, John Darms show up and they try to like kind of enforce some order, but then they, you know, they're also taking hostages and they are corralling these people and they will often then escalate some of, you know, they have the time right, to kind of, you know, shoot more Jews in retribution for supposed attacks or, you know, have kind of, you know, rape women, you know, but they also have to move on and they're more concerned about kind of creating order. So like they are not the worst perpetrators. I mean, they're definitely bad, but then there's a third echelon of gendarmes, at least in uh, liberated Bukovina, Bessarabia, and then in Transnistria. Um, these are um, from under the Ministry of the Interior, right? They're not under army control. And these guys have been told, ordered in conferences, they're, they're at least their commanders, by the chief of the gendarmerie, a guy named Vasilio, sorry, uh, Constantine uh, Vasilio, to cleanse the terrain, right? That you are supposed to like round up Jews, shoot them in place. The ones you don't shoot, you then put in ghettos eventually to be deported. So like there is, you know, these guys, that's, that's what they're told their main job is. So yeah, you have this kind of frontline troops run through doing these top-blooded, you know, atrocities. You have the military police, John Darm, show up, try to like do a semblance of order, also committing atrocities. And then you, and then after they move on, you have the Ministry of the Interior, John Darm, show up with the express purpose of shoot Jews or gather them up to court it, right? And those guys really commit a lot of atrocities. Um, you know, so you kind of have this wave effect where like, you know, these, you know, guys in the rear echelon, these John Darm, especially the Ministry of the Interior ones, with that state of purpose, have more time to commit more atrocities. Um, so something I forgot to talk about when talking about combat motivation, atrocity motivation, right? Time is a factor. You like if you're too busy fighting, you know, the, you know, you you can't take a break and murder Jews, right? You got to like fight the enemy. No, I'll insert that in um, at the back. Um, I think question eleven you touched on when we were talking about ideological motivation. So I propose to go on to question twelve um, and look okay. at so what 
factors, um, sorry, I'll start again. Were the factors that shaped Romanian motivation to fight? And it, it, I will start that question again. So what about officers and enlisted? Well, I mean, officers were always probably more committed. I'm, I, I hesitate to say that to a certain extent, but just the fact that they're more literate, the propaganda that's produced is a lot of it's written. And not just that, but like sometimes it gets hard, right? There's shortages of newspapers being sent to the front. Um, and... So officers are usually the ones at the staffs, right, getting the newspapers, and then when they distribute them, you know, into into the divisions and stuff, they're most likely to get a hold of a newspaper and then have ability to write it. There's radio propaganda. Once again, officers most likely, more likely to have a radio, um, be able to listen to it. Although soldiers did use combat radios to tune in, you know, so like rear echelon guys would be listening to the radio or even like, you know, forward guys. Um, <clears throat> and so... Yeah, so so for those reasons, and like officers were middle class or upper class, so they had their, you know, you know, not to, you know, they also they had property and they understood like the more the ideological, you know, communism, communist communism's ideological, you know, target that's painted on their back right? as the bourgeoisie, as like the large landowning class, um, and they were probably more most well versed in like. Um, anti-Semitic, you know, economic anti-Semitic arguments. All those, those had trickled down. Like a, an average peasant would, under, would, you know, know some of the economic, you know, anti-Semitism of Jews exploit us, you know, because they had Jewish tavern keepers and merchantmen. So I, I don't like officers definitely, but, you know, so I think at the same time, officers may be a little bit more self-critical. You know, I talked to some guys who were, uh, one officer was like, oh, I never felt like I was on a crusade. We were just, you know, soldiers asked to go do a job. So there's also like, you know, the officer class, you know, maybe a little bit more cynical about the war, you know, and the propaganda as well. So there's kind of a mix there. Um, they definitely remained loyal to the Antonesque regime and to the war to the end. I mean, the royal coup, it, it, that happens in 1944, it's kind of seen as, oh, it shows how demoralized the Romanian army, how uncommitted they are. Well, the royal coup was like a dozen people, especially like officers. Like it was very small and the king didn't. One of the reasons why is because the king did not trust the officer corps. The officer corps, by and large, was committed to the war, in bed with the Germans, had become very friendly with German officers, especially high-ranking officers, you know, like, uh, you know, army and corps commanders. Like, these guys were not to be trusted with the idea of a coup. Most of the officers who participated in, in the royal uh, coup, a lot of them were guys who were out of favor, who had been, like, uh, under the King Carroll's the second regime kind of brought back to advise. And then a few key, you know, mid-level officers who were able to convince, you know, the capital military commander to like shut down the city, you know, to allow the coup to succeed. But like, they didn't tell the army. So the Royal, in my opinion, the Royal coup is not proof that the officer corps was just like unmotivated and uncommitted. Sure. The officer corps accepted what happened. It was like, by that time it saw the writing on the wall, but on its own, the officer corps was not going to like jump ship. There's actually reports that, like, when Hit the attempt on Hitler, the July 20th plot, when that news broke, you know, soldiers were scared and then relieved to hear that Hitler hadn't died because they thought as long as Hitler was alive, he wouldn't, like, pull troops out of Romania, you know, German troops out of Romania, let them fall the communist, right? So, and officers were willing to dis discipline their men up until the end. You know, they were willing to, like, you know, put any kind of backbone that was needed, you know, whether, you know, for flogging, you know, or you know, slaps and kicks. We'll talk about that once in a while, shooting a soldier. Um, but they, you know, the officer corps remained committed. It wasn't any massive. And interestingly, 
so you have a lot of soldiers, like 70, I think like 70,000 captured at Stalingrad. So all of a sudden you have a huge influx of Romanian soldiers in, the, in Soviet prisoner of war camps. They eventually decided to try to cobble together a division, you know, a Romanian communist division to help liberate from fascist blah, blah. So they, they actually go recruiting, right? And so they get to choose, they talk to, and when they approach the officers, it's like maybe 20% of the officers approached agree. You know, higher number of like enlisted men, it's like 80%. You know, the conditions were terrible. So they are willing, the officers in the prison camps, right? And I have even like a diary of a guy who's in a prison camp who's following the war. He's like, we might be still winning. Like, you know, like very, he's, he gets approached. He's like, I told those bastards, like, no way. And when they form this division, the highest ranking officer they can find, even though they have like three, four generals that have been captured in Stalingrad, the highest person they can find to, or, to command it is a lieutenant colonel, right? It's not until after Romania switches sides that they, they create another division from these captured guys. They that a general finally agrees to command it, a, a captured general. Uh, but Bath, basically, that's because Romania switched sides, so he doesn't have to, like, you know, feel his, you know, honor besmirch. It's now in his country's interest to lead this unit. He can justify. But I think that's, like, telling that, like, even in captivity, these officers are, like, talking about the war and, like, discounting rumors about, you know, Soviet victories and, like, saying how, like, the, their Soviet guards are really depressed and, like, they aren't sure of victory and, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, diary to read, you know, about, you know, because he's at Stalingrad and he's in captivity for years after. And it's it's interesting to see how long he still keeps the hope that they're going to win, even though he's just been captured. Massive debacle at Stalingrad. Were the factors that shaped Romanian motivation to fight extensively rooted in the nature, tradition and norms of the pre-Second World War Romanian society? And see, the short answer is yes. That's basically the argument of my book, is that... You can't understand why soldiers fought on the front without understanding why they commit atrocities in the rear. And up until now, there's really been two strains of narrative. You have soldiers on the front. It's a mostly like Romanian nationalist narrative, bravery and betrayal to a certain extent that like, you know, they're let down, that they're caught between communism and Nazism. They didn't really want to be there, but they're brave anyway. They, they, and they, you know, they won all these victories. It's kind of confused, but Mark Axworthy, his book, Third Axis, Fourth Alley, which I still recommend. It's a great, like, operational, technical history, not just of the Army, but also the Air Force and the Navy. Um, and, you know, if you want, like, details of, like, operations and stuff, I went there a lot. But he, he based a lot of this, he talked a lot. He actually has two Romanian co-authors, you know, cited. So he kind of picked up a lot of this Romanian nationalist narrative, right? That really diverse, uh, divorces what's happening in the rear, you know, and, you know, much less what's happening in Transnistria, which is even further to the rear from the front. Um, you know, he doesn't completely, he mentioned the Holocaust, but he uses like lower numbers that were in favor by nationalist apologists. So you have like this very, very front, like so myopically focused on operations and specifically frontline operations. They never talk about like security operations, Right? They never talk about like anti-partisan operations um, in these things. Or they mention them briefly. They never go into detail. They never talk about the fact that a lot of these, are, you know, they're they're shooting, you know, prisoners and they're, you know, killing partisans. And partisan can be like some civilian who wouldn't like tell you, you know, where the partisans were or supposedly fed them. Right? And it's you know relatively innocent people, <clears throat> or just Jews. You know, like any any Jew was immediately. But like this nationalist apologist narrative myopically focuses just on the front line, right? Whereas then the Holocaust perspective, it focuses so much on the atrocities to the rear. They don't really talk about the army, like the, the war. And they just kind of assume, right, that soldiers will, 
you know, kill, you know, Jews. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm trying to put this together. Like you need to put these things together, the Holocaust narrative, the military narrative. And when you finally get those together, you, you, you can see a full picture of the Romanian army. And when you contextualize it that way, you can see that, you know, because for the Holocaust historians, a lot of them are like, oh, Romanians are anti-Semite. And that's like kind of enough. It's enough of an explanation uh, for some of these Holocaust historians. Not all, just like there's, but it's like, oh, there's anti-Semites. Of course there are. Like, of course they're going to kill you. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Especially, you know, when you bring in like nationalism, you bring in like Christianity. And they, the, the Holocaust historians talk about this too. But it's like anti-communism, you bring in those things, you know, you can then you can really understand, you know, what's going on. And Holocaust historians did a much better job of looking at where does this come from, right? They look at the 1930s, the 1920s, some of them even growing further back, right? There's pogroms in Romania since like uh, the 1850s and growing anti-Semitism and different laws and stuff, right? The Holocaust historians do a much better job of like, how do we get here? Whereas the military historians cut out, you know, anything that happens pretty much before the invasion and then just focus on frontline combat. And then say God and country is what motivated them. So when we bring these things together, we can actually get a view of like what's going on here um, and see how much what's happening is root. You know, all these ideologies are rooted in like this, <clears throat> you know, very traditional peasant society. Um, you know, these elite classes that are used to having power who are also like, you know, anti-Semitic um, and fear communism. Right. And, you know, this interesting aspect, the fact that whether you're like, a nobleman with a large land or whether you're a peasant with a small plot, you still feel fear communism, largely the same reasons, right? That they're going to come, take your land, take your property, destroy your way of life, maybe even kill you, right? It doesn't matter if you're, you know, the richest, you know, boyar in Romania, or if you're like the simplest Saran peasant, you know, you still have that, you know, that unites this, what can seem like a very socially divided country, you know, it unites them against this external and, in, and internal, right? the external threat of communism and the internal threat of Jews, right, that are linked in the Romanian mind at this time. I think it's probably really important to say, you know, that that all sounds very odd, certainly to me, and maybe to you from your perspective, but you have to accept, you know, this is what people believe and this is the way they perceive the world, whether we like it or not, that's that's their worldview at that time. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, this is all complete bonkers. It's kind of like with QAnon, you know, right? You can, there are people out there and maybe this is going to, upset them people that there's but they believe some really crazy stuff about you know you know the world today and that but that worldview has you know real life consequences and so i mean that is part of my book is you know is 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 not looking so you know outside like a german lens or a soviet lens of the romanians we need to get into the romanian viewpoint and this is what comes out and you know i talked to a lot of veterans and it's still there i mean they would defend minimize um the holocaust I mean, these are really good guys. I sat down, talked to them, nice old men, but they still to this day, you know, say the Jews, you know, were traitorous, you know, that they deserve what was coming to them. You know, they'll deny that they killed as many as they stated, you know, as historians say. And But they'll say, like, we fought a righteous war. You know, some of them were like, oh, no, it wasn't a holy war crusade, but it wasn't a holy crusade, it wasn't a holy war. But they'll still say that it was a defensive war. They'll still say that they, like, it was, it, you know, that, you know, they were in the right, that like the communists started it, even if they aren't like espousing anti-Semitic beliefs. So like, you know, it, it, I think it's important for us to understand that that worldview has very real consequences. We need to understand that ideology is permeating primary groups, right? It's permeating the officer corps, right? It's one of the reasons why the officers remain committed, being willing to discipline, you know, soldiers. 
And my penultimate question is what actions did the Romanian state take or the Romanian army in the Romanian state to promote and enhance morale and make the army as effective as it was? I suppose these measures could be put into sort of, I suppose, two categories. Firstly, would be the character or the sort of ones which would reward people. And the other one could be the stick or the coercive element, such as punishment. Taking sort of reward measures first, what did the Romanian state do and how effective was it? One thing I want to address real quick before we get into rewards is propaganda. I mentioned a little bit, but like there are, if you re, if there's out there, you know, arguments that the Romanian soldiers weren't told why they were fighting. And I will tell you, like there was printed propaganda, radio, film, you know, chaplains actually act in many ways. Uh, they probably won't like this, but a lot of the chaplains kind of off, uh, acted like uh, Soviet political officers, right? They were the ones spreading, you know, in the Soviet army, like the political officers, we had this idea but a lot of their, their main point was to like keep up morale and get the speeches chaplains you know their sermons if you read them like they're heavily filled with nationalist rhetoric anti-semitism in as well as like religious you know you know blessings and they even have what they call propaganda missionaries which i think is a telling term they use missionary right they see it as like a religious mission you know to go propagandize and these were created out of like an officer couple of musicians and then veterans who were for, you know, veterans of this war who were also formerly teachers, right, in peacetime. So they get these guys who knew how to instruct, but also could say, I fought, you know, at Odessa or I fought wherever. So I think that's a really important thing just to push out there. There is this constant barrage of propaganda that's reinforcing that ideology. Now, when it comes to like remuneration, reward as a motivation, you know, of course, one of the first things that come to mind is like medals, right? You have this you know, psychological you know, reward, but also there's, in the case of Romania, there's actually a material reward. Like the order of, of Mihai the Brave was like the top order that only officers could get. And it came with a knighthood, right? You became the knight of the order of Mihai the Brave and you received a plot of land, like a sizable plot of land. So like, you're not just winning a medal, you're like getting like social prestige and material wealth. Um, moreover, um, the highest, you know, you know, kind of medal for enlisted men, NCOs, was called the uh, Virtutia Militata, like military virtue. And even that, it wasn't just bragging rights. There was a plan by the Antonescu regime that everyone who won that award would actually get land in northern Bukovina or Bessarabia, the liberated territory. So in kind of to resettle your veterans on the, the border, the limes, like Romans, right? It's kind of this weird, like, we're going to displace like Jews... Ukrainians, Russians out of this territory. We're going to give land to these veterans who will then like go live there instead. We're going to like, it's, it's, it's a little bizarre, but it's this fantastic, fantastic idea that they had this fantasy of like, we're going to resettle, we're going to cleanse the terrain and then resettle it with Romanians, right? The Roman kind of limes connection might not be incidental. Romanians are conscious of the fact that they believe they're descended from Romans. So it might be like some conscious, like, yeah, you know, the, you know, you know, they like the Romans settled their veterans on the frontier. We could do the same thing. Like, I'm not, I would not discount that as an idea. Um, there's also um, material wise, reward wise, there's just sheer greed. And this isn't, you know, the, the state actually wants the Jewish property. Soldiers aren't supposed to get it, but looting, they're the first, they, you know, soldiers are first on the scene and they're the ones who are going to loot the most stuff. So we're looking at like atrocity propaganda, atrocity motivation. You know, there's a reason to shoot a Jew if, if you don't hate them. You know, because they've got prop, they've got maybe gold, even their clothes. It was a poor country. Um, there's actually reports of 
of uh, local gypsies going and bribing gendarmes to shoot Jews so then they could go through their pockets and strip the corpses because you could even sell the clothes because the country, you know, the, the country was, you know, this countryside was so poor. Um, so, you know, that's a kind of illicit, but like, but there's also even like, uh, there's actual expro- expropriation of property, you know, official, you know, taking property from Jews in you know, Bucharest or other other places and soldiers on the front. There's multiple reports of officers complaining. We're on the front, we're risking our lives and we're missing out on a bonanza. All these bureaucrats and functionaries and rear echelon guys, they're back home and they can get this expropriated Jewish property. That's not fair. And they're like the, the minister of defense comes in and says a certain percentage of property will be held back for our heroes at the front. So there's even like, you know, you know, that there's like there's like unofficial looting, but there's even like this official expropriation that social you know, officers are very concerned about. They don't want to miss out on getting a swanky apartment from a you know, cheap from a Jew who's been kicked out of his apartment. Um, and finally, there's kind of like, a, it's kind of a negative, but there's financial aid. All the soldiers get financial aid while they're mobilized. Um, this is especially important um, in some ways for middle-class officers, right? Their women, their wives don't generally work and they're the sole breadwinner. So when they're mobilized, their family needs that money. Um, and regular officers and regular NCOs have pensions, right? Well, if you are charged of a crime, like theft or desertion, you lose your pension if you're a regular officer, or if you or you lose the financial aid can be cut off to your family. So the Romanian army doesn't really practice like cash rewards. They introduced that in 1944 when the Germans army shows up because that's a German practice. I think they might have picked up from the Russians. The Russians do that too, where it's like destroy a tank, you get like a thousand you know rubles. The Germans are like, hey, you destroy a tank or shoot down an aircraft, you get 500 Deutschmarks. The Romanians, you know, introduced that in 1944. Um, once the German army, once they're defending Romania, the German army is basically like, hey, you guys are gonna offer us money for shooting down planes and blown up tanks? And the Romanians are like, all right, sure. Uh, which is, says something I think important, right? We, people generally think of the Romanians as the avaricious, you know, you know, vino types. And they're not the ones that introduced this. It comes from the Germans. Um, but yeah, I think like a lot, some soldiers, you know, and it's interesting, you know, uh, you know, you don't want to lose that financial aid. Um, and that leads into this uh, idea of punishment, right? There is this, I, there is a practice of rehabilitation. And this is going to link uh, to financial aid. Right? So after um, the first like six months of the war, you have a fair number of like looters, deserters, and other malcontents, like kind of kicking their heels in prisons, either on the front or in Romania. Um, a lot of in Romania because the front was really close, right? When they realize the war's not over, right? They're going to have the 1942 campaign. The Romanian army has already lost a lot of soldiers, right? They're already in even the German armies. They already have a manpower crunch. And so the Romanian army is looking around and they realize we have all these guys sitting around in prisons. Why don't we like offer them a chance for rehabilitation? This is based on the uh, military justice code. It was originally just for officers, like this kind of archaic uh, code, uh, line in the code where it's like, if you're an officer and you play cowardness, you can be reduced in rank to a private, set in the front line, and if you demonstrate bravery, then you can have like your rank restored to you, and you have to do it voluntarily. It's like kind of a voluntary thing, um, so you can like restore your honor. So it's originally just for officers, but they decide to expand this into like a big system and expand it to non-commissioned officers and enlisted men. So all these deserters or like thieves or uh, 
you know, not only desert, like some of these deserters are just guys who got AWOL, right? Or like over overstayed their leave or got drunk and punched an officer, stuff like that. They can have their sentence suspended and then released to be retrained and then sent to the front and have a chance to restore their um, honor, right? And also restore financial aid, right? There are, I have found letters, petitions, right? Where a guy has been assigned to like a telephone unit. He's like, can my repairs under fire count as a brave act so that I can be rehabilitated and get my pension back? It literally says that. So I can get my wife out of poverty, right? Um, when he was, you know, they actually weren't, he had the only, it only counted if you were in like a frontline unit. So the guy's kind of out of luck. But they actually set up um, a whole training center, uh, the Serata Training Center, where they actually create entire battalions of these guys. <clears throat> so there's like two tracks. There's like the Tiraspol Training Center, which is in Transnistria or on the, just on the Transnistrian side. The, uh, no, sorry. The, this, yeah, the Transnistrian side. And they will like onesie twosie it. They'll like train, retrain the guys for a couple months and then send them as like individual replacement in the front. So you'll have like, you know, a mountain battalion and they'll get replacements and there'll be a couple of these rehabilitation guys, right? And so like, um, but all the guys who are in prisons in Romania, they get sent to Southern Bessarabia, just Sarasa Training Center. And they get formed into these, what they call independent, infantry battalion um so it's an entire battalion of just rehabilitation um so about they're about a thousand strong and the vast majority are just guys deserters and then i think after that it's like thieves but there's also like fascists there's legionaries the uh who had been suppressed so they're political and these guys are actually super motivated to fight and then you also have even like common criminals so it's kind of like a dirty dozen right most of these guys are just deserters but then you have like park core fascists and then you have a small and then you have some like pickpockets and like the you know like professional criminals uh there's actually a and because of the discrimination there's actually a lot of gypsies you know because like just like you know they'll be they'll be sentenced to higher rates than like a romanian um but yeah they, they actually create like four of these battalions in 42 and three of them are at stalingrad uh one of them's you know one of two of them are basically completely destroyed and then there's like uh, three more that they, there's a couple more, they fight. And like, they initially do fairly well. Like, it's kind of like, they say like about, they offer these guys, they let them out of jail. Like they give them like, all right, you're gonna go report to this camp. And then like 95% show up at the camp, right? And then like, after like two months of training, there's a like, something like 85% are still there. They haven't deserted, haven't like decided they don't wanna do it. And then by the time they get to the front, they're down to like 80%. They have some desertions, you know, you know, along the way. And some of these maybe gypsies who are like, screw this, you know, like, because they actually announced two gypsies in the camp. Like, yeah, your family's, the gypsies are being deported. And even if your family's been deported, we're not letting you out of here. You still got to go do rehabilitation. And they're like, they're, they have, the gypsies say, why should we fight against communism if you deported our family? And the guy's like, do you want to go back to prison? That's like, that's like the second command's response, right? But like, 80% of them get to the front and like evidently, you know, one of the battalions gets like over a hundred iron crosses while fighting in the Caucasus with a, a German mountain unit. Um, they start breaking down They um, pretty quickly by 43. It's like as the officers and NCOs who aren't rehabilitation guys get killed off, the ones who train them, the person, the primary groups start collapsing and like, um, you know, the, you know, they start, the, the, the guys start deserting more. And eventually these um, battalions are broken up. A lot of them are destroyed or like they kind of collapse in 43. There's like a couple left and there's a big offensive and they just kind of disintegrate because they aren't motivated. But the rehabilitation policy 
is so important to providing replacement, they continue using it up, up through the end of the, up to 44 and even after. And But they use them as like individuals, more like individual replacements or like a platoon or something. Um, so like, you know, other guys will kind of keep an eye on the, you know, if you're in a mountain unit, you know, you know, this guy's a rehabilitation soldier, kind of keep an eye on him to make sure he's doing his job, you know. Um, so like they had less motivation. They were more likely to d- desert again. Um, but like, you know, they complain like, oh man, we should just shoot these guys. And they weren't allowed to like guys keep des- deserting from the Tirasso training center during the rehabilitation. You know, the German army says they just shoot guys for desertion and, but they never get the permission to just, you know, shoot people willy nilly, you know, summarily for, for this. But yeah, there is some, you know, other, op- there is some Samara, some, some executions, um, just enough really to like keep it as a threat. Um, once in a while, there's a blocking detachment, like a general be like, oh, we've had soldiers retreating under fire, put in a blocking, de- set up a machine gun behind them and shoot anybody who retreats. I've seen those orders. I doubt they were ever or very frequently uh, forced. I actually have a, a oral history of, a, there's a report of a guy who says like, I was ordered to do this and I didn't, right? He was ordered to use his machine gun to fire on retreating soldiers. Screw that. So like, it's easy to like threaten to shoot people. It's hard to actually like carry it out. Especially when like saner minds are like, why I shoot these guys when we need them to like fight, get killed in battle. Um, and yeah, so I mean that kind of covers it. You know, you you know, you get prison sentences, but those would usually be re- you know suspended for rehabilitation. Once in a while, like they would publicly like after Stalingrad, there's like a list of like 12 guys. We caught these guys in Kiev, super far away from the front. Definitely deserters, not just lost or like you know after the defeat. And like 11 of them were scheduled for execution, and they publicized this in the army. Whether those guys actually were shot, I'm doubtful. But they definitely told the army they were threatened with execution. Uh, but, you know, really, like, only guys with, like, clear signs of self-mutilation really had a good chance of actually being shot. You know, some, you know, so it's not as, like, it's, you know, it, so discipline is harsh. And they are willing to shoot people way more than the U.S. Army or the British Army in World War II. I mean, the U.S. shoots one guy, you know, but it's not on the scale of, like, the Germans who shoot at least 15,000. And that's just recorded. Or the Soviets, you know, who shoot many you know more uh so it's so the remain army. but oh and lastly physical there's flogging in the remain army they reintroduce it so it had existed in world war one up to world war one during the interwar period they like decide we gotta get rid of this you know this is bad for morale this isn't good for citizen soldiers they actually reintroduce it and it kind of bubbles up i found examples of flogging even before it's officially reintroduced um and it's interesting because they basically when they're going through to liberate Bessarabia and northern Bukovina, they actually like don't, they like relax discipline. There's a lot of tolerance. The officers looking the other way or even participating in looting and allowing soldiers, even encouraging, encouraging soldiers to like kill Jews and loot. They'll look the other way. Once they get into Ukraine, all of a sudden they get stricter and um, they reintroduce flogging soon after. And I think this is in part, in part because they realize <clears throat> we can't, you know, they, we can't let the soldiers become indisciplined, right? They are acting, you know, they, they, they won't be able to fight. They'll be too busy. Like they literally were talking about like avoid towns with Jews in it. And they call them like evil foreigners, malevolent foreigners, because the soldiers will stop and start shooting Jews and getting drunk and instead of marching, right? So they have to, so I think once they've like gotten liberated land and they're like, okay, we've, we're cleansing the train. We've done this. Now we got to reassert discipline. Plus, you know, the Germans are on our case. The Germans will come in like another German army would shoot people like this. There's like several orders like that where it's like General von Schubert says in the German army, 
they shoot these types of people, right? So there's also Germans getting on the Romanians case for too much looting, too much indiscipline. Um, and um, so, yeah, so like, you know, there's General uh, Petre Dumitrescu is in charge of Third Army, which later becomes not an operational unit. It basically becomes like an administrative headquarters in charge of like supplies and discipline. He's kind of in charge of every soldier from, you know, the Dniester to the, to the Dnieper and then beyond. Uh, kind of running, you know, courts marshals and making sure supplies show up. He, he doesn't actually, he, so there's some period of time, he's actually like a combat commander, but in the beginning and at Stalingrad, but for a while he's not. And he is super like pro-flogging. It's like a solution to every problem. He just was like, oh, we found the deserters, just, just flog them and send them back to their unit. And like the, the Ministry of Defense had to kind of stop. No, you still have to have court marshals. You can only flog people if like you go through the regulations. There has supposed to be a doctor there. You can only do it in serious offenses. But like, you know, so Dumitrescu was like a stern disciplinarian. He was like, just flog everybody. And I found some really, you know, a lot of evidence of, uh, you know, guys could be flogged. I found evidence, you know, they weren't watching prisoners and they had the hand, they, I think they had like, bad uniform they got 15 uh, stripes right and this is in transition so it's like but the thing is flogging is much more common in the rear right sustaining morale like it's for maintaining discipline in the rear there's it does it has much less of of, uh, of impact in combat combat troops you know normally like you know the officers are much more closer to the men you know i had many often you know enlisted guys saying like yeah we like we're in the trenches together and he's in you know i had veterans tell me like i didn't begrudge flogging you know usually the guys who got flogged deserved it right so like the romanian soldiers were from a very different society than even like you know britain or germany at the time they were willing to like you know physical violence was more common they were willing to put up with more of it um they still hated officers who went too far um but on the front line there was it was limited and yeah maybe when you're fighting you're like oh if i don't attack maybe the i'll get flogged but really most of the flogging was for like theft looting desertion it's not like you know, it's, you know, it's not for like not attacking. Um, so like, yeah, there's that, there is that kind of fear of your officers and this plays a role. Like Holocaust historians are like, well, they, they threatened that they would shoot soldiers if they didn't kill Jews. And that never happened. I'm like, Hey, I'm not quite, it's like, yeah, but those, those guys, those officers might beat you and you've been so disciplined. The discipline is so strict. Like you're not likely to disobey an officer when they tell you to do something. Sure. Most of the soldiers were fine with shooting, but discipline, even the threats did carry weight. Um, and you know, some merit, some, you know, so like we have to take that into account that like, you can't just say like, Oh, it was all talk. Cause like, yeah, the officers weren't likely to actually shoot you, but they could beat you up. And there's also like unofficial flogging is official, right? There's a process. Uh, officers were much more likely just to slap you upside the head. Um, there's reports about like broken jaws. Like there's a complaint like, hey, the soldier was put in the hospital because his jaw got broken by an officer, right? So officers could physically unofficially just beat soldiers. It wasn't as common. I mean, like severe beatings, um, but like slaps and kicks and like stuff like that was very common uh, on the front. So like we can't completely disregard the fact that like when a soldier is told, you know, like take these Jews and shoot them, you know, sure, he already has an ideological predisposition to see those Jews as threats. But that threat, if, if he's like kind of hesitant, that he will take that order. It has an, an impact. But at the same time, I, a lot of these soldiers don't need that order, right? They, you know, it's it's kind of unusual that an officer, you know, would have to push very hard to get soldiers to uh, push, you know, it's, they're pushing against an open door. Like there's threats, but there's plenty of examples of like initiative by soldiers 
of, of killing Jews. And I kind of my book is really emphasizing that a lot of it is kind of just, oh, of course, soldiers will carry out these Jews to commit atrocities, carry out these orders to commit atrocities against Jews. And I want to complicate that and say, actually, a lot of these soldiers are spontaneously kind of taking the initiative because the discipline gets relaxed. And they're like, they look around, they're like, oh, the officers aren't going to beat me. The officers are looking the other way. The officers are even joining in, right? We can like completely go wild, right? In 1940, that pogrom atmosphere, when they're retreating from Bessarabia during that withdrawal, the, the army actually comes in and stops it because they're worried it's going to get out of hand, right? That they're going to lose discipline, that they wouldn't be able to like set up a new defense line just in case the Soviets decide to keep coming. Um, and like soldiers are doing stuff they're not ordered to. No one orders them to kill Jews. There's like soldiers like throwing Jews off of trains, even other Jews in uniform, like Jewish soldiers. Anyway, so like that's like indicative that there was this like pent up anti-Semitism that then when in 1941, when they the officer corps relaxes discipline and then even kind of pushes, you know, hey, let's kill more Jews. There is pressure from especially from certain commanders. And then there's an overall overall effort to cleanse the terrain and then it just explodes. Right. You go from a few hundred Jews killed in 1940 on kind of initiative of like soldiers and, you know, maybe like an officer here and there to the 1941, you just have hun, you know, tens of thousands murdered, you know, because of you're just unleashing, you're rolling back the discipline, you're, you know, pushing down some orders, and then that just explodes into an orgy of violence. Uh, and, you know, during that period, and then they kind of cramp down back on it, they realize like, okay, we got to get back to fighting the war. Once we're in Ukraine, we need to, they literally need to tighten their belts and lengthen their stride, because they're like, trying to keep up with the panzers. And, you know, you know, they literally are like, oh, we were outrunning our our uh, our supply wagons and stuff so they're literally like we don't have time to do this anymore and we don't have time to like loot and kill jews and you know so it kind of you know um so it's an important aspect there of like discipline is it's it's not you know it's a it's a it's a it's a part of but i wouldn't say it's even a primary motivation in atrocity and or combat motivation it's really important for like sustaining motivation keeping soldiers like in line on the front uh but i you know it, it, the remain army gets such a bad rap for flogging the ones who, and I think it's a, kind of needs to be put into context of like, of, of, of the society of the era and of the more bloody, like, you know, the Germans don't beat you. We'll just shoot you. Right. Like the red army, like, Oh, we're not going to, we will, we will never beat our soldiers. Yeah. We'll just like, you know, execute them or like put them in like a punishment battalion and send them into like the most dangerous, you know, part of the front. Right. Like, <laughs> so it's like, I think it, you know, it's, it's a bit relative. Um, it's, it's kind of abhorrent, but I think, it, it, to us today but it was normal then and finally where can people learn more about your research and get the book all right so uh cornell university press uh the cornell battlefield series it's online i'm part of my book's part of that series um, it's also on amazon already which is great you can pre-order it um you can follow me on twitter at g harward um i'm kind of posting photos and um videos and little tidbits and stuff that didn't get into my book you know um and there's some, I have some articles when I, I wrote when I was, a, you know, uh, out of my, you know, master's research, it's in the journal Slavic Military Studies or um, uh, Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism. So if you, you have access to some, you know, library or something, you can also look up some of my older research from my master's. Grant, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you.